Lord, um, we are grateful that as you hung on a cross, you said words whose meaning are deeper and richer than we could understand when you said it is finished. There is so much, Lord, that is finished on the cross because of what you've done for us. Thank you for struggling to find the breath to announce those words to us and assure us, Lord, that it is finished because of what you've done on the cross on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that we would never take our eyes off that, that we would remember that it is because you have done these things that we are right with God and we have a bright and hopeful future. And Lord, to that end, we want to pray for our sisters, Jeannie and Trina, as they are in the hospital even now um, with different conditions, different problems, different prognosis, different treatments. But Lord, the one thing they have in common is they are in your hand and that you will provide for them and care for them. Lord, you are working everything together for their good. And uh, Lord, we're, we're grateful for that. So as you are working your ways in ways we can't understand and can't see in their lives, we, we pray that you would remind them of your tender care for them, your love for them. And Lord, we pray for their doctors, that they would have wisdom and care, that they would feel compassion for these ladies and want to treat them well. And at the same time, Lord, we want to pray for Joanne, who's um, waiting on the city to approve a permit to install a heater. Lord, the temperature's coming down, and, and I pray that you would, um, in miraculous and, and surprising ways, work behind the scenes to get the city to approve that soon so that the furnace can go in and she, she won't have to face um, a cold house for very long. And Lord, we pray for her health and for her strength and that she might be restored to us soon. Lord, as we turn now to the book of Philemon, uh, we, we again acknowledge that we're not going to be able to get this on our own, that we need your help, Holy Spirit. Lord, would you illuminate the page and show us what it is that you're saying to us. And most importantly, at the end of all of this, may we be trusting in and, and delighting in Jesus Christ all the more. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So last week, when I said that we were going to do the book of Philemon, what I had said was that um, evangelicalism is beginning to experience some fractures, that things are, are, are shaking up a little bit within evangelicalism. And what I wanted to do was hopefully go to Philemon and see if we couldn't learn uh, from the book of Philemon and avoid those problems. And so uh, I just wanted to kind of back that up a little bit. Uh, in April of this year, there was an editorial in Christianity Today called um, The Splintering of the Evangelical Soul. It was written by the president and CEO of, of Christianity Today, Timothy Rumpel, uh, or Di, Di, Di Rumpel, and it was rather long and rather rambling and pretty technical in places. But I thought the introduction to the, the, um, the uh, editorial was, was a good example of what I was trying to communicate about the way that, that evangelicalism is struggling and beginning to, to fracture a little bit. And here's what uh, Dyrumple says. He says, new fractures are forming within the American evangelical movement. Fractures that do not run along usual regional, denominational, ethnic, or political lines. Couples, families, friends, and congregations, once united in their commitment to Christ, are now dividing over seemingly irreconcilable views of the world. In fact, they are not merely dividing, but becoming incomprehensible to one another. Recently, a group of my college friends, all raised and nurtured in healthy evangelical homes and uh, congregations, 
reconnected online in search of understanding. One person mourned that she could no longer understand her parents or how their views of the world had so suddenly and painfully shifted. Another described his friends who were demographically identical, who had once stood beside him on practically every issue, but now who promoted ideas he found shocking. Still another said that her church was breaking up, driven apart by mutual suspicion and misunderstanding. This is the spirit of the age. This is, this is kind of what's going on in the world right now. We see it in the church. We see it within uh, a greater society, in our politics, in all of these things. There's these fracturing and these drawing apart. I really want to avoid that here with us, if at all possible. I, I really don't want us to begin to fracture that way. And the, I, I think the best approach is to look to the scripture and, tell it, and look at it and say, Lord, how do we get along? How do we stay united? How do we remain connected to people we may not necessarily agree with on some suddenly contentious issues? And so I think Philemon is a really great way to do that. I think it's a good, good book to start with. Um, we could go to a number of other ones. Ephesians is another good place to do that. But Philemon is, is short, and it's not preached very often. And so I thought, let's, let's listen to something a little foreign to our ears. And so the series is it's only going to be three weeks. We're going to take uh, just a piece of the, um, the letter at a time. Um, but the series I've titled, as you can see on the screen, uh, A Picture of Christ's Family. And I picked those three words extremely carefully. It is a picture of Christ's family. So what do I mean by it's a picture? Well, when we did Philippians, Philippians is a letter written to a church. It's written in a broad scale. It's, it's written where Paul does his typical pattern, which is here's some theology and here's how it applies. With Philemon, we don't get that. With Philemon, it's a personal letter, very personal, written to one man. It's written to de deal with one specific issue, something going on. And so what we get is we get a, a kind of a look into the life of the body of Christ on this one issue. It's a snapshot. It's a picture of it. And so they say that a picture is worth a thousand words, but it's only worth a thousand words, and there's probably more that could be said about it. Um, so when you look at a picture, you have to be careful because you you're, have to understand this is only one, one image from one angle for one moment. And time goes before and goes after it, and we don't understand what, what everything that was going on in it. So let me show you an example. Put up that first picture, please. This photo was taken at the 2018 G7 Summit in Quebec, uh, Ontario. And it was published immediately. And the picture was supposed to show uh, President Trump being intractable while he's being lectured by uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel. And the other world leaders are, are looking on as, as she's apparently lecturing him, and he's just being intractable. And I, I still remember when this picture showed up and some of the comments that came with it. And I thought, immediately I had a response, but I thought, I'm going to wait, because I'm sure there's more to this photo that's, than what we see. But you can see it looks like a very tense, a very fraught situation, doesn't it? It's one snapshot. It is one moment in time, and it doesn't explain everything. So here's another picture from another angle at the same, about the same moment. Go ahead and show the second one. It's a little harder to see because it's a different angle. You can't see Merkel. She's still leaning over the table. 
but the person right in front of her is uh, Theresa May, the, the um, Prime Minister of England at the time. You can't see what she's doing, but um, Japanese Prime Minister Abe, the, the Japanese gentleman standing next to Bolton, is now smiling. In the previous picture, he was frowning. He looked very concerned. Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, standing very far back by the mirror, big sweeping grin on his face, and other people are grinning and smiling as well. Now, doesn't this, this is the same instance. It's the same thing. People are still in the same positions, but it's different. A picture can only capture a snapshot, a moment in time. We don't know what that first picture was doing. It could be, I don't think it was, but it could be that Angela Merkel was leaning over and was about to tell a joke, and so she's setting up the joke with this very intense thing, and now she's sprung the, the, the um, punchline and everybody's laughing. Now, I don't think that's what happened. I don't believe that's what it is. But this tells a very different story, doesn't it? So when it comes to looking at a snapshot, you have to be careful. Just because you can see the picture and you understand maybe some of the faces or something, it doesn't mean you understand what's going on. There's often more to it. So you can go ahead and go back to the, the um, sermon slide. So when we look at the book of Philemon, um, we, we're approaching this snapshot of the picture, or the snapshot of the church, this one instance that's frozen in time as Paul writes to them. And instead of getting all the theology and then doing the application and then saying, okay, well, here's the theology, here's the application, how does this apply to us? With the book of Philemon, we have to do it a little bit different. We have to look at the snapshot. We have to understand the picture as best we can. And then we have to take the additional step of saying, now let's go behind the photo and ask, what truth is it that's driving Paul to write this way? What theology is he employing that's saying to him, this is something that has to be resolved in this specific way? What is Paul thinking, to the best of our ability to understand, um, as he's writing this letter? So we have the benefit, unlike that one photo, <laughs> we didn't have the benefit at the time of the second photo or anybody's testimony. We have the benefit of having this snapshot in the book of Philemon, but we have so much more of Paul's writing. And we, we can understand so much more of his theology, of his thoughts, what's on his heart. Um, we don't know exhaustively or perfectly. I'm sure he'll surprise us when we get to heaven and talk with him. But we do get an understanding of the man. And so that's how we're going to approach Philemon. It's a picture. It's a moment in time. But we need to understand what's going on in the picture, step behind it, and then we can bring it forward and say, how does this apply to us? Because if you just go to Philemon and you want to do application, anybody own a slave? Nope. Anybody own a slave who has run away? Nope. Anybody run, own a slave who's run away and become a Christian? Nope. Anybody own a slave who's run away, become a Christian, and is now coming back to you? Nope. Well, I guess the book of Philemon doesn't apply. That, that won't work. And so we have to understand the photo, understand the thoughts behind it, and then we can bring it forward so it's a picture. But it's a picture of Christ's family. And that, that, that idea that it's Christ's family is we have to remember at the center of Paul's theology, at the center of Paul's thoughts, is Jesus Christ and what he's done. And so as we approach this, we're looking at this issue from a Christian perspective and saying, what has Christ done in this instance and how does it apply for us? And then it's a picture of Christ's family. Now, I don't mean Mary and Joseph. I mean, Christmas is coming. It was a dangerous thing to say was Jesus' family because we're immediately thinking of, of uh, crushes and, and Christmas cards. But it's Christ's family as in us, the church. He has adopted us into his family. We are adopted as, as um, God's children, and he is the elder brother. 
And why do I say that it's his family? Well, listen to the language of the letter. In verse 2, Aphia is our sister. In verse 7, Philemon is referred to as my brother. In verse 10, my child Onesimus. In verse 10 also, he says, whose father I became. Um, In verse 16, Onesimus is a beloved brother. And in verse 20, yes, brother Philemon. It's littered with, for such a short letter, it is littered with family language. And we have to keep all of those things together. The snapshot, Jesus at the center, and the fact that we're talking about the family. Because what else is going on in here is there is potential for a lot of division. Look at the cast of characters that are in this book. Um, It began with Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Who is Paul? Well, we heard him in Philippians. He is a Pharisee of Pharisees, or he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, advancing amongst his peers. He was circumcised on the eighth day, the tribe of Benjamin. He was Jewish, as Jewish it came. And, And that's who Paul was. And then it says, and to Timothy, our brother. Well, who's Timothy? Well, I don't know if you remember, a while ago we went through the book of Acts, and in Acts 16 we were introduced to Timothy. Timothy is a Hellenistic Jew. That means his primary language is Greek. His primary culture is Greek. He's a Hellenistic Jew. And his father, according to Acts 16.1, was a Greek himself. He's a half-breed. He wasn't even circumcised on the eighth day. And what we hear later in the book of Acts, or in Acts chapter 16, is that Paul took him and circumcised him. So when, when we think of Timothy, we think, well, Timothy's a Jude, but just barely. <laughs> he's he's kind of almost not there. If, if you want to hear what I'm talking about, look at Acts chapter 6. Because in Acts chapter 6, the church is together, and the complaint comes up that the Hebrew widows are being fed, but the Hellenistic widows are being neglected. So you get the idea that between the Jews, there's, there's Jewish, and then there's, you know, Jewish. And Timothy's in that latter category. Philemon, who is Philemon? Well, according to um, a lot of uh, interpretations dating back to about the 2nd or 3rd century, Philemon is a wealthy Gentile who has at least one slave. He lives in the city of Colossae, and, um, and he is the guy to whom Paul is writing because He's doing something Paul needs to correct. Well, don't forget, Jews didn't like Gentiles a whole bunch. Remember from Acts chapter 10 when Paul goes to Cornelius' house? He says in verse 28, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. And then Onesimus. Well, Onesimus is, according to Colossians 4.9, he's a, he's a, um, a Colossian, he's from Colossae, He's a Gentile, that's a Gentile name, but he's a slave. And in the Roman world, the slave was property. We weren't given human rights or those kind of things. But not only is he a slave, which puts him at the bottom of the social ladder, he's a runaway slave. That means he is universally despised. You have violated the position that you've been, you found yourself in. You've run away. You, you could kill a runaway slave and have no legal recourse. There would be no problems for you to do that. Uh, there were people who were made a living going and finding runaway slaves and bringing them back. So, so look at that, that snapshot of these, picture, or of these people. You got a Jew of Jews, a Jew, a, a rich Gentile slave owner, and then a runaway slave. And yet, how did Paul refer to all of these people? 
my brother, my sister, my son. I'm his father. And he's appealing in this letter to all of these diverse people, all of these, these different groups who have every reason in the universe to not have anything to do with each other. He's appealing to them to come together and be unified. So if this group could work together, and they don't have just differences of opinions, they have big differences. If they could come together and work together, do you think that maybe we have a chance of remaining unified in Christ in these divisive times? Do we have a chance? All we have is political differences or differences of opinion on different things. Can we, if they could do it, can we do it? I'm hoping that we can. And so what we're going to look at in the book of Philemon, we're going to look at how does Paul appeal to them to remain united with the huge differences they have and this major issue that they're going to have to deal with. How do we remain united? So this morning we're going to start with just the first seven verses, one through seven, and what we're going to do is recall the good. We're going to recall what is good. And so here's how it starts. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So it's a standard greeting from two. And one of the questions that comes up is, well, who's the letter written to? Because there's three people mentioned. Um, it's titled Philemon because that's the first person, but maybe Archippus is the slave owner. Well, one of the things that's so frustrating about this letter is it's so short and it doesn't answer all your questions. It just is going to frustrate you. You want to have things nailed down. Um, from about the second century to about the 18th century, the church just accepted this was written to Philemon, that Philemon was a rich Gentile and that he lived in Colossae. It wasn't until the 18th century that we finally got around to figuring out, well, that can't be it. <laughs> so let's just go with the traditional reading. It's just easier. So Paul writes to Philemon, Apphia, Archippus, and the church in their house. So this, this Philemon must be pretty well off because he's got a house big enough to host people in. The church would gather in his place. And so he, he's doing well there. He apparently owns a, at least one slave, maybe more. So he's a rich and man. But what we're going to see in the rest of the letter, he's also very generous too. So don't, don't get a negative picture of him just yet. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this is what turns out to be a very standard blessing from Paul. Uh, as I was studying, I went, that's what he said in Philippians. Why is everybody connecting this with the book of Colossians? This is connected to Philippians. He's using the same blessing. And then I went, oh, wait. <laughs> he uses it in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and 2 Thessalonians. Word for word, exactly the same thing. So it's his standard greeting. But I don't think it's just a catchphrase that he throws out. I, I think that Paul actually is genuinely expressing this. And he found a set of words that encapsulates his thoughts, his desires, and so he uses them a lot. Um, not me, but other preachers, you will hear use phrases over and over again and, and common ways of saying things. It doesn't happen with me. I'm, I'm much more polished than that, but other, other pastors will do that. So this is not just some perfunctory, formulaic opening that he has. I think it's genuine. If you want to see Paul kind of rush through the opening and get to the, the meat of the thing, look at the book of Galatians. 1 and 2, who it's from, verse, or verse 2, who it's to, 3 through 5, blessing, verse 6. I am astonished that you have so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ Jesus. Paul just kind of, he, he goes through the steps and then he gets there. There is none of that in the book of Philemon. 
in the book of Philemon, it's all very careful and, and very couched, but it, it's not rushing through to get through to what he wants to do. And so I, th- I think when he mentions those things, he's being genuine, he's being authentic. Now we come to verses four through seven, and our photograph is a little out of focus in this place. It's a little hard to read. Uh, so let's take a look at this. We're going to have to go a little carefully. What we'll do is we'll look at, try to interpret this, this portion of the photo, and then we'll step back and ask some questions of it. So uh, this is going to take a little bit of work here. Uh, Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I heard of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. In, in Greek, it's a little bit clunky of a sentence, but what is he saying? Is he saying that the, the Philemon has love and faith in Jesus, and he has love and faith in the saints? Um, how, how does that work? Well, because it's a little awkward to put together, some translations handle it a little bit differently. The New, America, the New International Version and the Christian Standard Bible say something like, because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they, they, they parse it out and they say, Faith must be in Christ, and love must be for the saints. Um, I don't see, as, as I'm, I'm not the greatest Greek scholar in the world, but I don't see justification in the Greek text to break it up that way because it has faith and love toward Jesus and for the saints. It's just the way it's worded. The ESV, though it's clunky, it's pretty, pretty, same, or, or pretty accurate in, in rendering what's in the Greek. So what are we saying then? What, is, what can it mean if, if he says that Philemon has love and faith toward Jesus and for all the saints? Um, some differences of opinion. I think perhaps maybe a best way to understand that is love and faith are be intended to be kept together. Um, not split up and said, uh, you know, who it belongs to, but that is one concept, a, a faith that is from the heart or heartfelt faithfulness, or heartfelt connection to Jesus Christ and his church. And and maybe that's where he's going, is he's saying, Philemon, you have a real, genuine, heartfelt, honest connection to Jesus, and and not only to Jesus, but to all those he saved. You have this towards the church. So maybe that's what's going on. And the reason I say that is because in verse 7, he says, I have derived much joy and comfort from your love. In other words, what what Philemon is doing is he's comforting. Because of his love for the saints, he is, Paul has said, I've experienced that myself. You're a genuine person who really cares for and loves loves people because they're in Christ. That's a good thing. That's a commendable thing. Even more, he goes on and he says, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So Paul is, is, I think what he's doing is he's saying it's not his faith in the saints, but it is loving faithfulness to Jesus expressed in the church is probably what he's getting at. So they are the saints. They are Jesus' people. And then verse 6, he goes, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Um, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. That's, that's not the best way to word that. It, it, we're still a little bit out of focus here. The New International Version says, your partnership with us in the faith. The King James says, 
the communication of thy faith. And the New American Standard, which we heard Jim read this morning, says the fellowship of your faith. So what are they trying to do? Why is this translated in, in such various ways? Well, it's actually a word that we should be familiar with because we just looked at it when we were looking through the book of Philemon. The word is koinonia. And, and what it means is it's talking about uh, the fellowship or the, the communion or the community kind of thing. Uh, so when the ESV translate it, translates it as the sharing, that kind of is, is part of koinonia. It, it is sharing in a communal kind of connection, but it doesn't really capture it. So I think maybe a better way to talk about that is, is the way that his faith works in community. The koinonia is that community, and his faith in that community is probably the better way to approach that. And so what he's saying is that this is a good thing. It's a, it's a right thing that he's doing, that his faith is becoming effective. Uh, in other words, his faith is accomplishing things in the world. What we can kind of sometimes get the idea is, is faith is just goes on between my eardrums. It, it's what happens in my head. But Paul or uh, James, I'm sorry, warns us about that. You say you have faith, and I say I have works. Well, show me your faith. He's not saying faith doesn't count, only works counts. What he's saying is faith that is alive, that is saving, that is real, will do something in you. So Paul says, I pray that your faith, the community of your faith, may become effective. It may do something. And what is that something that you're going to do? You're going to come to the full knowledge of everything good that is in us for Christ's sake. Because you're acting out your faith, because you are living in accordance with your faith, because you're being faithful to your faith, if you want to say it that way, you're going to live a life connecting with other people and blessing them. And what that yields is you come to understand all the good things that Jesus has done for you. Not just knowing them, not being able to write them out on a piece of paper, but experiencing them, bumping into them, watching them happen. And so that's what I think Paul is reaching for. So we already touched on verse 7. Let me ask the question now. That's the picture. Hopefully we cleared up some of the fuzzy parts of the picture, and, and now we can step back and say, well, what's behind the picture? What's behind the photograph here? What's going on? What truths led Paul to write this way about Philemon? What is he saying? So what Paul does is he first begins to appeal to Philemon. He's about to ask him to do something pretty dramatic, but he starts by appealing to the fact that Philemon is in Christ. That not only has Philemon made a profession of faith, but Paul can attest to the fact, I have seen the work of Jesus Christ in your life. Your faith is effective. You, you, are, you have this love for the saints. I've experienced it myself. And the church that meets in your house is blossoming under your, your kindness and your, your goodness to them. So he's saying this to a man who has been born again. That's why his love toward, the, uh, toward Jesus and toward the fellowship of the faith is real, is because it's genuine, heartfelt, real love from a born-again heart. The promise is that Jesus would give us a new heart. He would take the heart of stone out, put a heart of flesh in, and then inscribe God's law on that, incline us to live the way that God had desired us to be. So Jesus then, he saves us not into isolation, but he saves us into a family. He saves us into a group of people. And that's what's happened to Philemon. Philemon, you have been born again. You have been brought into a family. Look how you operate within this family. 
I have received joy. I have been blessed by it. The saints in your house are blessed by the, by the work that God has done in you. So faith is not this kind of fire insurance or a get out of hell free card. It's a new life. It's a new heart. It's a new attitude towards things. It is what would make it possible for Paul the Jew, Timothy the eh Jew, and a bunch of Gentiles and a slave to get together and be, be, consider each other family. Is faith, faith in Jesus Christ, faith what Jesus has done. So others can hear about our love and faith because we have a renewed heart. If our heart is renewed, that is going to express itself in our lives. That, that's what is behind Paul's picture that he's painted of Philemon. So Paul is going to appeal to Philemon as a human being with a renewed heart. But don't miss the fact that he's about to ask him to do something very difficult. He's about to say, and you're doing something wrong, and I want you to stop doing it. Why is that? If we have this renewed heart, if we have the law inscribed on our heart, if we're bent that way, because that renewed inner being is contained in a body of flesh that hasn't been renewed. And then the flesh continues to go in the direction it's going to go. It, it's, been, it's been years. Um, I'm not going to tell you how many this, this one's been trotting around the earth, but it's been years doing the same things the same way. And so though my heart and my spirit are renewed, my body still likes to do the old things. And that's what's happening with Philemon. So Paul needs to appeal to him because he's doing something wrong and he wants him to do something right. But he, he has grounds for that appeal. He says, I have hope in appealing to you because I know that you have a new heart. And so Philemon, I want you, I want to call out that goodness that's in you, that work that Christ has done in you. I want to point to that and now say, now continue to work in that. Remember what Paul said when he was talking about himself in, last, um, uh, in Philippians. I was going to say last week, but it's earlier than that. <laughs> Philippians 3.12. He said, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. So Paul himself goes, look, I haven't got it all together. But I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. And so that's the hope that he has in appealing to Philemon. He's about to ask him to do something. So if that's the theology behind his opening, his, his welcoming of, uh, or his introduction to Philemon, how do we apply it? So this is where we have to then say, okay, this is the picture of Philemon. Here's the theology that drove Paul saying that. Now we can take that theology and bring it into us. And how does it apply to us? Well, when we have a difference with a brother or we find them incomprehensible, as Dyrumple said at the beginning, if, if we remember that they are still our brother or sister in Christ, then we can adopt that same hope. We, we can have that same theology and say, Lord, you have started a work in them. And you will be faithful to complete it. You, you have born, they have been born again to a new life, to a new hope in Jesus Christ. And so the very first thing that Paul does is he says, I thank God always when I remember you in my prayers. That, that's the first thing we can do. You can have hope that this other brother or sister in Christ is going to be okay. Even if you never come to an agreement and you can start by praying for them. You can say, Lord, I know you have begun a good work in them. I don't understand what their, what their point is. I don't understand why they're, they're arguing with me about this. But, Lord, I know that you love them. And would you continue to do that good work in them? Pray for them. Paul demonstrates that for us. 
And then the next thing, before you start, and this is especially dangerous on social media, before you start arguing with them, and you just don't understand, you don't understand the situation we're in, before you start that, do what Paul has done here. Stop. Remember the good that, they, that Jesus has done in them. How has this person been a blessing to the body of Christ in general? What kind of things have they done? What have you seen them do? And I got to tell you, just kind of a quick aside, if you don't know anything about this person and you can therefore not name things that they've done, then maybe it's best not to engage them in an argument online. It's going to be fruitless. You're going to be frustrated. They're going to be mad and you're going to wind up divided. Um, social media provides way too many opportunities for that. Maybe it's not the best thing. But if it's a friend, if it's somebody that you've known, remind yourself of that. But remind yourself it's not this person is a good person. It is Jesus Christ has been at work in this person's life. He has been doing things in this person. Has he abandoned them now? May it never be. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of our Lord. So start with the assumption that the person has that, opera, or that operational renewed heart and that you're simply having a disagreement. Um, recall the good things that they've done. Remember the good works they've accomplished. And then ask, how have they served and how can I serve them? Maybe that's the place to begin rather than the argument is to say, how can I serve them? What would be best for them? So what we've, what we've seen them do for Christ and his church, remind yourself of that. As you go into the argument, remind yourself of, of that. You need to remember it. Remember that you're dealing with a brother and sister in Christ. That changes the dynamic. That changes things drastically. You can argue with an unbeliever because we don't have a common ground to stand on. But when it comes to somebody in the, in the church, we have some commonality, huge commonality, supernatural commonality. And then you can thank God. What Paul does is he, he prays and he thanks God for what, they, what is, he's done in them. He says, Lord, you have been working in them. Remember those things and it will remind you that you're dealing with a child of God, his creation, and a person that he is currently working in to renew into the image of Jesus Christ. And maybe in some places that person's farther ahead than you, in some places you're farther ahead than them. But it starts by coming back to Jesus Christ. And then there's one word that's not mentioned here, but I think it's, it's just behind the picture, just on the other, like, like Paul flipped it over and wrote it on the back of the photo. And that word is gentleness. And we're going to see that a whole bunch through this. And so let me read two verses to you to remind you of the place of gentleness in the Christian heart. Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's what Paul is doing. He's not going to come in and zap Philemon. And, and as a broader evangelical movement, as a church of believers, that is the approach that we should have. Humility, gentleness, patience, eager to maintain the unity because it's spirit-born. The other one is 2 Timothy 2.24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth 
and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. How do you get that person out of the snare? By beating them with a stick and telling them how wrong they are to get their foot stuck in that stupid trap? What's wrong with you? No, he says, correct your opponents with gentleness. Their opponents, correct them with gentleness. And God may grant them repentance. You always have hope. And that's what Paul is showing us here is he has hope in Philemon. And so he starts with a very glowing picture of his brother in Christ. Before he comes and he says, now look, here's what I want you to do. To begin with, you have the ability to do it because you're in Christ. So as we are facing other believers and friends and people we've known for years inside this church in Christianity or or evangelicalism in general, um, online, in person, um, some of them will be tragically incomprehensible to us. How, where did you come up with this stuff? I don't understand why you, would, why you would accept those things. We have a picture here. We have an image. We have a way of approaching them with care and gentleness and kindness. And it starts with you reminding yourself of who they are. And then you can begin to engage the person. And I tell you, that, that is how you get that gentleness. You don't just go, I'm going to be gentle. Therefore, I'm gentle. What do you mean I'm being mean? I'm not being mean. I'm being gentle. I just said I was being gentle. But if you start with your own heart, then you can approach them with gentleness and let them be wrong on occasion and still love them because you look in them and you say, Jesus Christ, my Savior, my Master, my God is doing a work in that person. Lord, use me. Use me. Help me in this. And let them be the same thing back. Let them do a work in me. Maybe I need to be corrected on this. And so it's gentleness and it's humility. Who's right in this situation? With all the fractures that are, that are beginning to appear in evangelicalism, who's right in all of this? Jesus Christ. Maybe your side on one or two issues, maybe their side on one or two issues, but the one who's ultimately right on all of this is Jesus Christ. Appeal to him first. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in peace. We are eager to do that because your word tells us to do that. Because you have established a unity, because you have built a church, because you have drawn together people from wildly different backgrounds, and you call it your bride. And so, Lord, would you help us be that one little bit of calm in the middle of a storm where we try to work with people that we don't necessarily agree with on every point, but we love because they're Christians. Lord, this is a supernatural thing. It is not something that we can just muster up in ourselves. Holy Spirit, we appeal to you. Please make it a reality. Preserve our church in the unity of peace. And Lord, as we look towards the broader swath of evangelicalism, and by evangelicalism, we mean those born-again believers who trust in the inerrancy of Scripture, the, the personal work of Jesus Christ, the need confer, for conversion, and the reality of the, the work that we must do in this world. Lord, would you grant all of us unity when it seems like we're heading in alt- very different directions? And Lord, we want this not because we want to look so cool or we want to maintain our our social power and and, and control and and our position in society, but Lord, because you told us they will know that you are my disciples because of your love for each other. 
And so, Lord, that's what we want, is we want people to look at the church, the evangelical church, and say, Jesus Christ is real. Look at what he's done with these folks. Lord, would you make that a reality for us? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. This last song is both a commitment to God and also a prayer for his power. So as we sing this, would you speak to him and ask for his instruction, for his direction? Go ahead and rise as we sing Build My Life. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe, we live for you. Oh, we live for you. Holy, there is no one like you, there is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder, show me. upon your 
foundation I will put my trust in you alone and I will not be shaken I will build my life upon your love it is a firm foundation I will put my trust in you alone and I will not be shaken holy there is no one like you there is none beside you open up my eyes in wonder and show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me i will build my life upon your love it is a firm foundation i will put my trust in you alone and i will not be shaken maybe see you